this was a thing, listeners. This is Nathan Lane, star of the hit 1996 Michael Nichols film, The Birdcage. I called him Michael. We had a very close relationship. Oh, I miss Michael. This week, we're talking about La Cage Yes, that's right. The movie-slash-musical-slash-play that the birdcage was based on. But did you know that La Cage also laid the foundation for films like The Hangover? I've never seen that one. American Pie. I think I've seen the third one, but it was on a plane. And Beverly Hills Cop. Oh, I'm very familiar with that one. I'll watch anything Judge Reinhold's in. Oh, and it was a hit musical. I never was in the musical. I got to be on the screen, which obviously has a lot more eyes seeing it, so that's fine. Anyway, La Caja Fall, the franchise, this week on This Was a Thing. This was a thing, this was a thing, this was a thing Do you remember Patty Hearst's kidnapping? This was a thing, pretty much Atari Deep Throat Roots and Ted Bundy Hanoi Jane, Celebrity Bowling That was a thing Bobby Fischer, Blackouts, Benny Hill and Paul Lynn, Dolly and Marie, Rich Little and Billie Jean King This was a Hi, I'm Ray. And I'm Rob. And you're listening to This Was a Thing, the podcast that dives deep into the cultural happenings of yesteryear. Today's episode, we are talking about La Cage au Fall. Oh. This was a thing because while today we see many queer-themed shows and queer characters in television, movies, musicals, the mirror, it was not <laughs> always that way. And it was a little something from France, we come from France, a boulevard comedy, if you will. And if you don't know that term, I'll explain it to you. Thank you. Uh, that would change the game for queer characters and bring queerness out of the closet, as well as pave a way for all queer content you see today. If you are a fan of RuPaul, if you are a fan of uh, Will and Grace, if you're a fan of Brokeback Mountain, oh. then it's all because of something called La Cage au Fall, a movie uh, that was actually a play first, then it was an Oscar-nominated movie, then oh, it wow. was a Tony Award-winning musical, and then we probably know it today as the Birdcage. Oh. Yes. And this little piece of queer culture, La Cajo Fall, was actually created by a very heterosexual male, Ray Hebel. Um, <laughs> hi. Hi, I'm Ray Hebel. Welcome to La Cage of Feek. La Cage of Fall. La Cage of Now, first of all, Ray, before I begin, I, I need to ask you, have you ever seen the movie, the original French film, La Cage of I have not Fall? seen the original movie, no. That surprises me. Have you ever seen the musical? Lacajo Fall. I've seen uh, selections. Selections. <laughs> Vocal selections. I mean, if if I was in New York and a production of Lacage was playing, I would absolutely go see it. Have I, you seen The Birdcage? Yes, I've seen The Birdcage, okay. and I'm familiar with the music of Lacage. I okay. think it's a great show. You're not auditioning. You're okay. The uh, play, Le Cage au Faux, was uh, created by a, a very famous actor in France named Jean 
Poire. Now, I do not speak French, and so I'm really? going to be fucking up a lot of you people's names today. You pronounce it good. Well, that, you pronounce it real good. You pronounce good. it good. I bet you speak English real good. Uh, boy, I can tell by that. Now, Jean Poire uh, was an actor in France in the 1940s and 50s, and if you're a foreign film fan, there is a great film called The Last Metro. He is in that. Um, he also made a name for himself on radio and in the theater, but in 1952, he met a fellow comic actor by the name of Michel Soro. Yes, I know. He's a name that we all hear. We still talk about well, him today. I, I do the Soro uh, technique. Michel Soro is probably one of the greatest physical comic actors of his time, equated with Charlie Chaplin and oh. all that stuff. But at this point, he was just a guy named Michel with a beret, <laughs> a baguette, and a dream. The Rob Schneider story. The Rob Schneider story. Now, uh, uh, Jean and Michel, they, uh, they hit it off really, really well with one another, and uh, they decided to do a podcast together. <laughs> Just kidding. They decided to make the world laugh, with Poiret being the writer for the pair, and then the two of them performing in theaters and clubs across Europe, and at the time, one of the most popular theaters in France, um, as well as Broadway, was a genre of plays, and that was known as the Boulevard Comedy, which if is no longer seen really on Broadway today, but if you watch sitcoms, you can thank the Boulevard Comedies. Oh. Have you ever heard this term before? I actually never heard it before. A, a comedian like yourself. Yeah. I, I'd avoid boulevards. Okay. A lot of traffic. Sepulveda especially. Yeah. Now, for those of you who don't know, a boulevard comedy was a comic play. It was usually a farce or the comedy of manners. If you watch Frasier, you know exactly what I'm talking about, where the contemporary audience laughs about modern times as they see themselves reflected on stage. So... Yeah, they were usually focused on domestic situations, and they were peppered with pop culture references, so the audience would laugh and laugh. So Norman Lear liked these. Norman Lear loved these. Uh, it started in France. They come from France with a playwright named Georges Feydeau. And like I said, if you love Frasier, you'll think Feydeau. But Broadway was where it's at, and some of the most famous of the era are, and they were turned into movies, so you might be familiar with them. The Seven Year Itch, which was a domestic comedy about a married man fantasizing about his beautiful neighbor, played in the movie by uh, Marilyn Monroe. Yes. The iconic wind blowing up That's the great. Right, okay. Never too late. Did you ever see Never Too Late? It's the story of a middle-aged woman who gets pregnant uh, at the same time her young daughter does. So, father of the bride, too. Uh, <laughs> and, of course, the king of Boulevard comedy, so I think one day we'll probably get his own episode on here, Neil Simon, uh, who focused on being a bachelor and come blow your horn, the life of newlyweds and barefoot in the park, and, of course, the pains of being divorced in The Odd Couple, uh, most recently revived on Broadway with Matthew Broderick and... Oh, hello, I was Oscar. You leave little notes on my pillow. It took me three weeks to realize that F. Human Felix Unger. Thank you, Mr. Lane. Now, each uh, each of these plays that I just mentioned uh, were domestic and for the tired businessman. And uh, if you notice, these plays will all had one thing in common. They were about straight people. Why is that? Because... You really couldn't be gay and be on stage at the same time. Let's remember that theater in England was heavily censored. There was an actual censorship office wow. that said, uh, up until the 60s, called the Lord Chamberlain's office. Really? Yeah, which was saying, like, yes, you could do this play. No, you can't do that play. <laughs> and uh, commercial New York producers, uh, even though there was no censorship in the United States, they would not do anything that would embrace or acknowledge the gay lifestyle. Because if you remember in the United States at this time, folks, it's illegal. Yes, being gay was a crime, and it was abnormal and a psychological disorder how would you even know who was gay well let's go to the expert mr mike wallace with his iconic 1967 special the homosexuals homosexuality is an enigma even in this era of bold sexual mores it remains a subject that people find disturbing embarrassing and the reluctance to discuss it yet there is a growing concern about homosexuals in society 
about their increasing visibility. Queerness uh, was not to be seen or discussed, but some shows, plays did feature it, but, and it was always something that needed to be punished. Yet in the late 60s, a few things started to change in the world, which meant Broadway would follow suit. The sexual revolution started to show people sex could be whatever you wanted it to be. Mark Crowley's play, The Boys in the Band, showed audiences gays were just like straights uh, in 1968. And, and they ni- could play music. And they could play music. And in 1969, a stonewall occurred, and homosexuality was in the beginning stages of decriminalization, but it was still a serious issue. Yet in 1970, two things changed on Broadway. The first was Leroy Reams became the first out character in the musical applause and the world didn't end, everyone was fine, and a comedy opened about a son telling his parents he was gay in the comedy, Norman, is that you? So maybe it was time to bring gays out of the closet, and for that, we're going to go back to France and Jean Poiret. In 1973, in France, Poiret wanted to do a play for him and Soro that was just a pure farce, one that showed off their ability to be cartoony, and Poiret came up with a play called Le Cage au Folle, which is somehow translates to either the cage of mad women, but then it's also a derogatory term for gay men in France. So it's actually a slur more Got than it. anything. And this would be like all other domestic comedies taking place in one location and would feature a trope as old as time. A conservative family meets a liberal family through marriage. If you've ever seen You Can't Take It With You. Jimmy Stewart, old movie, it's a play as well. I think I'm sure. Same premise. But in this, there'd be a twist. Yes, the primary couple would be two men, played by Poiret and Soreau. Once again, both straight guys in real life. Sure. So uh, if you've never seen it, here's the plot. It's pretty much the birdcage. George and Alban are a middle-aged gay couple that run a drag club in France where Alban is the lead of the club and is like the head female drag impersonator, right? Many years ago, George had a son. Uh, he sired a son with a woman. He had a one-night stand with a woman. Look at him being experimental. Oh. The son has now come back and said, hey, here's the deal. I'm getting married, but her father is like a real big conservative that doesn't believe in homosexuality. Um, So they're going to come here to meet you, but we're going to pretend that you're straight, Dad. We're going to send Alban away, and my biological mother's going to come for the night and going to pretend that, like, you you guys are still married to, to fool everyone, right? And that's pretty much... It. Complications ensue like they always do. And what ends up happening is, is the biological mother can't make it in. So Alban dresses like the mother and then does pretty much a drag performance. That's that's pretty much it. What does that remind me of? The birdcage? <sighs> yeah. Uh, at the end, all uh, is revealed. The couples go off together happily. And audiences were rolling in the aisles for almost, this is in France, 1,800 performances. Oh, my God. Finally closing in 19... 19- 1978. It was so popular, they actually filmed the play live and broadcast it on French television. Wow. It was was like that that popular. Did they they do most of the run? Do you know? They did. Oh, wow. They were in it for a really, really long time together. Now, Poiret and Sorot, I mean, just to be clear, this wasn't affectionate. This wasn't warm. Um, It was big, campy, hysterical, cartoony, sissy, pansy, queer they did the limp wrist they lisped um, and the audience laughed at the two funny queers that was like the whole point of it there is footage of this on youtube i I can't show it to you because it's in french so you wouldn't know what the hell they're talking about and also it's all about the visual because michelle soro as the the nathan lane character Mm -hmm. is it's one of the most brilliant comic performances you've ever seen in your life oh wow 
ever seen in your life. And luckily, I'm going to talk about it in a second. It's also in the French film because he did the he got to okay, do the French film. It. But if you folks, if you've if you're a fan of comedy and you've never seen this performance, watch it. It is epically brilliant. But in the play, they're not human. I mean, it's just like two walking cartoons. And when you watch clips from the French play, you can see this looks nothing. You're supposed to be laughing at these characters. There's nothing affectionate about it. And it's an excuse to laugh at queer characters like you saw maybe like in the pre-Hayes Code movies. And speaking of movies, having created such a stage success, it was time to put Lacage on film. But it's always hard to adapt a one-set stage play into the world of film. How do you do it and keep the comedy? It's not so easy, and many others like it failed. If you're a Neil Simon fan, think of his films from the early 70s, like Last of the Red Hot Lovers, which is god-awful, and Prisoner of Second Avenue, in which you are a prisoner in that movie theater. But there were some very smart decisions early on. The first would be that the movie was going to be directed by a uh, very famous French director named Edouard Molinaro, not to be uh, confused with Al Molinaro from Happy Days. And he was a very big director of the New Wave movement. movement. He was best known for commercially successful comedies. He, Poiret, Francis Verber, and Marcello Dannon would write the screenplay and flesh out the characters and locations because you can't just have a movie that takes place in a person's living room. No. Like a play, you have to go out other places. But here was the big thing that they added that the original play did not have, and they added a heart to the story. And because they were able to expand, they allowed us to see Alban on stage, what he was like as a performer, what how the town viewed him. There's a really touching scene in the movie. As crazy and as farcical as the movie is, um, and as much as you're supposed to be laughing at these queer characters, there's like one moment in this where you're kind of, where they really are like, we're going to humanize these two people. So Alban leaves. He's like, you cheated on me. And George goes to find him sitting at a train station. And he just and he sits down next to him and he tells this story. Basically, what he's what all the all George says is he goes, I have the most beautiful cemetery laid out for me when I die. It's on the hill and it's gorgeous and it's beautiful. And then he says, I've seen to Alban, he goes, I've seen your cemetery, and it's a piece of shit. And it's dirty and disgusting, and there's no view. But you know what I did? I've sold the plot I had up in the beautiful area because I want to spend the rest of my life and on with you in this shithole because you make me laugh and I'm and I love you. And it's oh, not an it's a beautiful no, moment. Yeah. They don't the actors in the scene don't even look at each other. They're just sort of looking ahead at the nature of it. And in that one moment, these two characters get humanized. And they also give George a pretty fierce monologue about like how he's proud to be who he is to his son. And he's like, it's taken me a long time to get to this place. So if you don't like it, you can fuck yourself and your fiance's family can go fuck themselves. Now, this production would be something, the movie, the production, would be something that was very common in Europe, which was a co-production between countries. Two countries, France and Italy, with United Artists as the main umbrella. Now, they allowed Michel Soro to stay on to play Alban, but for George, they needed an Italian star. Uh. And they got a gentleman by the name of Ugo Tognazzi. Ugo was one of Italy's most respected leading men in comedies and was uber masculine. You ever see the movie Barbarella? Yeah. He's the one who saves Barbarella and is like, now you have to sleep with me. <laughs> That's him. Now, he was a bit difficult to work with on this, um, and he refused to do any of the lines written in French. He's like, I'm not going to speak French. They're like, can you speak French? He says, yes, but I'm not going to speak French. He would only speak in Italian, and then <laughs> they, had what? To, they had to go back and redub him. It was crazy. Then both he and Soro 
didn't get along with the director because the director was like, I want this to be played realistically. And Soro and Tagnazzi were like, uh, no, we're going to play it like cartoons because there's a reason it ran for five fucking years in France. So they like butt heads, but somehow they brilliantly were able to meet in the middle and you got a film that was funny and heartwarming at the same time. The movie comes out in October of 1978 and it debuts in Europe and it's a hit, a big fat homo hit which is actually my grinder profile. So United Artists, oh feeling God. gutsy, because they're a relatively new company in the grand scheme of things, they decide to open it in the United States. Oh, wow. Now, this movie has a few things working against it. First of all, foreign films at this time were not common to be commercially successful. Nobody went to go see them. Audiences were not too interested in subtitles. I mean, I got a read during the movie. And they didn't know who these actors were. You know what? These are, they're no names. And it's about a gay couple, and one of them has a son. This makes no sense. And an Italian doesn't want to speak French? What's wrong with these people? Now, also, 1978 was a tough time for the queer community. We had Anita Bryant. If you remember her, the orange juice lady got hits with the pie. Mm. The assassination of Harvey Milk, and so much more. Who would want to see this film? So United Artists was like, we're going to open it up in a couple of art houses in New York and L.A. and San Francisco. So all in all, when they first released it, maybe 10 at most theaters are playing it and here's what happened it got great reviews oh. it got fantastic reviews sold out houses which led to more screenings and a newer version where the actors were dubbed so that way you didn't have to read the subtitles who dubbed them broadway stars dick latessa and victor garber really yeah. and here's this is where it gets mind-blowing lacajo Fole became the highest at this time the highest grossing foreign film of all time in the united states oh wow and today currently holds the 11th position. Now think of all the great foreign films by Fellini and Bergman and Kurosawa that came out before Lacajo Fall that somehow did not get as yeah. enough attention as this movie did. Wow. Now Harvey Firestein, uh, who's going to come back a little bit later, Ow. Ow, once said, if it don't make money, it don't count. And the fact that Lacage was raking in money and society wasn't collapsing meant that maybe, just maybe, more queer characters could be seen in media. Obviously, the queers are making us money. Just a year before Soap introduced, the TV show Soap introduced the world to the gay character Jody, played by... Billy Crystal? Yes! Uh, but could Lacage be a TV show? Producer Danny Arnold tried to get Adam and Eve's off the ground, uh, but it was a no-go. It was going to be a TV version of Lacage au Fall. Got it. The Broadway producer David Merrick wanted Lacage as a play to go on stage uh, for as a vehicle for Zero Mostel. Wow. But no-go. So while America tried to figure out what to do with the success of Lacage, the original team was able to create something that would become the norm for successful comedies in America. Franchise it. Sure, we think of the Hangover franchise and Police Academy franchise and the Ghostbusters franchise. But before, and McDonald's. And McDonald's. Franchises. French fries. <laughs> but before them was Lacage au Fall. And very wow. soon they went into production with Lacage au Fall 2. <laughs> now, a couple of things. First of all, because he's Italian, they don't call him George anymore. Now they call him Renato. <laughs> so we would meet Renato and Alban, but this time they would get mixed up in a case of international espionage um, in which they flip some of the conventions of the first film, like Alban teaching policemen to act gay and Alban having to d disguise herself as a poor peasant woman as opposed to like the glamorous drag yeah, queen yeah, she yeah. is. And folks, I will just tell you, first of all, be careful in this movie. Alban does do blackface, so there's a there's a warning there. But later on, um, when she gets oh in drag God. as the peasant woman, 
she is the dead ringer for B. Arthur. <laughs> she is the dead fucking ringer for B. Arthur. Well, the film debuts in 1980 in Europe and 1981 and the United States, and it does okay. The reviews are middling, but all praise the performances and the clockwork-like precision of the writers. But it didn't get amazing reviews, still good reviews. It looks like Lacage's franchise has hit its limits. Or has it? Because... Get ready to sing. Okay. Uh, and change Broadway history. One of the biggest fans of the musical, uh, sorry, of the movie La Cage Folle was Broadway composer Jerry Herman, who I've heard has the largest penis in the business. That's what I've heard. In the 1960s, Jerry Herman was the king of musical theater and Broadway with such shows as Milk and Honey, Hello, Dolly. If you're a Wally fan, you know Hello, Dolly. Hello, Wally. And Mame. But by the 1970s, he was persona non grata on Broadway after a string of big failures. And also in the 70s was the ascent of Stephen Sondheim, who was considered to be the father of Broadway musicals, whose sophisticated, pessimistic musicals were all the rage. They could not at all compare to the optimism that Jerry Herman had. They are both both like very different sides of the coin. But Herman saw the movie and thought, this is a musical. And he could imagine all the musical moments from the film. The cemetery scene at the train station. The mother flirting with George again. The bullies beating up George, he was ready to go, except someone had the idea before him to make it a musical. And that person, Alan Carr. Yes, Alan oh Carr. Oh, my God. The producing queen from Can't Stop the Music and Grease, the man who would give us the 1989 Oscar debacle, wanted to try his hand at a Broadway musical, and he thought Lacage would be the perfect vehicle because it was a perfect film. But it needed a few changes. <laughs> yeah. In Carr's version, the musical would be set now in New Orleans and retitled The Queen of Basin Street. And it would have a score by newcomer Maury Yeston, book by the Oscar winner Jay Preston Allen, choreography by Broadway wonderkind Tommy Toon, oh. and direction by the King Midas of direction Mike Nichols. This was Broadway royalty, and Carr felt great, except he never did a musical before. So he hired executive producers Barry Brown and Fritz Holt, who were like, uh, hey, Alan, you hired people who will literally lose money for the production because <laughs> their costs are so high. He's like, they, they were like, you, all you'll do will, is fail. And so Brown and Holt fired everyone. They fired Mike Nichols. They fired Tommy Toon. They fired Jay Preston Allen. And we're like, we're going to start from scratch. Brown and Holt felt that a director of substance was needed to guide this ship. And they went to Arthur Lawrence, uh, one of the most notorious assholes on Broadway, <laughs> but was a book, was the book writer for West Side Story and Gypsy. But now he was a director and he's like, hey, I hate camp and I hate drag, but I love you too. Honestly, Lawrence thought with Reagan, the religious right, and the gay cancer spreading in New York City, they would never find enough backers, but he would get some nice cash out of it. When Jerry Herman had found out what happened, he went rushing to Brown and Holt, who approved him for the job, and that's when Herman got a real surprise. Alan Carr only got the rights to the stage play, not the movie. So anything that was in the movie that was not in the play could not be used. The mother can't use nope. her. The cemetery monologue can't use it. George being beat up can't use it. Lawrence and Herman, both gay men themselves, realized that they represented the older gay voice and needed some young blood. And that came in the guise of a new playwright named Harvey 
Firestein, who was making a name for himself with the gay-themed play Torch Song Trilogy. Together, these men began to make Lacajo Full into a musical that couldn't resemble the movie everyone knew and loved. Now, Lawrence and Herman have differing views on the collaboration, but they did agree on a few things, like the show should go back to France, and it should still be called La Cage Folle because that's the brand name. Mm -hmm. They also decided it would be best to make the show a glitzy, glamorous fun fest in which audiences would leave entertained and enlightened, but there would be no political grandstanding, which was actually what Lawrence and Firestein were known for. But they were like, but their feeling was you can get more flies with honey than you can with vinegar. If we want people to change minds about homosexuality, we can't lecture them. We're going to dazzle them. And in the middle of the dazzling, they'll start to realize like they have the wrong yeah. point of view. Now, at Backer's auditions, Herman would play the score and Lawrence would fill in the storyline, of which they were still not so sure what to do without that mother character. The Broadway producers, the Nederlanders, loved the show and decided it would open at the Palace Theater in August of 1983. However, who would want to be in it? Because you have to play gay men on stage at this time. Agents and managers even refused to pass the audition request on to their clients. There were no openly gay actors in the media at the time that would fit these roles. And people who played gay most likely had a little left of their careers when they were done. Think Harry Hamlin, who was mm -hmm. in the movie Making Love as a gay man, and yeah. then like he never got anything after that. So this was going to be a challenge. Now, for the role of Alban, the flamboyant drag queen, uh, this was going to be tricky for you need an actor with great power and the ability to do drag and have a great voice, and be okay with taking on this role. And in the end, it came down to two actors for this role, George Hearn and Charles Pierce. Now, Pierce was one of the most iconic drag queens and performers of their time. And Hearn was known as a big Irish drinker with a chorus girl in every show and had just finished playing Sondheim's murderous barber, Sweeney Todd. So between these two, the choice is obvious. They went with George Hearn. <laughs> Not the professional drag queen, George Hearn. Also auditioning for the role, Uncle Milty himself. Really? Milton Burrow. If you don't know George Hearn, here he is. Remember, this is supposed to play the queen of the French drag circuit. All right, you sir, how about a shame? Come and visit your good friend, sweetie. You sir, you sir, welcome to the grave. I will have vengeance. I will have Camp roles, which is what Hearn is going to play, they had been a mainstay on Broadway, and it was easier task uh, because the camp made it comical. So the audience always knew, that's a guy playing a woman. He's not really gay because he's so campy. Now, the role of George, on the other hand, who is the quote-unquote straight in the relationship, he had to sing a love song to a man and look comfortable doing it. And this was the role that proved to be the most trouble for the original production and subsequent productions. And we'll talk a little bit about that later on. They looked at Broadway actors Richard Kiley and Jerry Orbach and John McMartin and, P and Peter Lawford. And nothing seemed to be clicking until they met Gene Barry. Gene Barry was a tough guy actor who was best known as Bat Masterston and the star of Burke's Law. But he was able to sing and dance and was game for the role. Let's get him in. So Gene Barry, George Hearn are going to do it together with the guarantee that any interview they do mentions Gene Barry's wife and kids, and they mention what a Lothario George Hearn is. And in rehearsals, it became clear that Gene Barry wasn't working. He was stiff, uncomfortable, and jealous that George Hearn was getting the showier role. 
Uh, George Hearn, on the other hand, was terrified to put on the dress and heels in rehearsal, but he was consoled by the fact that, yes, he was fucking one of the women in the ensemble that he later married. Oh, good. So... That's a story for you. Now, Firestein, Lawrence, and Herman, on the other hand, were creating at a record pace and quite happy with what they were coming up with. And in fact, the lack of the mother character had actually opened a big door for them. What if the show is really about that the real mother is Alban, and that's what the story's going to be about, a son realizing who his true parents are. Family is family, regardless of blood. And the penultimate monologue that George delivered in the movie would now be reworked uh, in a different context and we'd be given to Alban, which I'm sure Gene Barry was fucking thrilled about. <laughs> well, at least I get the great speech. How's the monologue going, George? The song uh, that eventually this monologue became became a song called I Am What I Am. Uh, I'm going to play a little bit for you. This is uh, George Hearn, Queen of the Drag Queens. <laughs> Now, this song was destined for fame. You could just feel it. It's such a good song. Now, there's discrepancy on how the who came up with the idea. Arthur Lawrence said that he instructed Jerry Herman to write the song based on that monologue. But Jerry Herman says, no, he's like, that's not what happened. Harvey Firestein wrote a monologue for the play. And with that line, I am what I am. And Herman's like, I need that line. And he decided, I'm going to write the song based around that. Either way, the song was going to be a hit. If the show would be a hit, let's go out of town. Broadway had no room for a feel-good musical. Since Sondheim and Andrew Lloyd Webber, the most successful shows were not really feel-good shows, except maybe Annie. And the upcoming Broadway season was filmed with the antithesis of Jerry Herman's optimism. Richard Mulpey and David Shire were bringing in their musical Baby, which was about the joys of pregnancy. And the musical started with a film of a sperm being fertilized, fertilizing an egg. I'm sure gay audiences love that. Uh, <laughs> Chicago and Cabaret's Candor and Ed were putting Cheetah Rivera and Liza Minnelli into a musical about a mother and daughter who scream at each other for two hours in the rink. And finally, Stephen Sondheim was back after a painful flop with new collaborators, and everyone was looking forward to seeing his new magnum opus, Sunday in the Park with George, about tortured artist George Surratt. And his grandson. And his grandson. <laughs> May I have your attention, please? You, Elaine May. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, listeners, uh, but what could be more exciting than spring showers, green trees, and new flowers? How about new Patreon subscribers? Tell us more, my little Cinco de Mayo. Oh, well, let's do some spring cleaning of your wallets, folks. Head on over to Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. C-O-M. And search This Was A Thing, the podcast. I'm not going to spell that out for you folks. And send a monthly donation, and even a dollar a month helps us. Your contributions help us continue doing what we're doing. Get so many more episodes, 26 at least, but we're working our way to get a lot more for you folks. Just be ready. Get ready for audio overdrive. That's right. And the general public does not get those 26 episodes. You... You only get them 
Hey, hey, for spring, you know what I'm going to do? What? I'm off to pick flowers now. What? Can I join? I don't know. Can you? May I join, Mr. Schneider? Yeah, I just, I think you just should learn how to say it correctly, that's all. May. May I join? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, But you probably don't. You're allergic to a lot of this stuff. Yeah, this is actually really bad pollen season for me, so... Meanwhile, it was time for Lacage to try out in June of 1983, and they went to Boston. Conservative. I was going to say, oh, I'm sure Boston loved it. They realized in Boston, we have made the stupidest decision imaginable. We are opening this show about, starts with drag queens and ends with two men holding hands walking off into the sunset together. We're opening this in conservative Boston. Uh, the night before did not go well. The dress rehearsal before the first performance, it did not go well. The set wouldn't work after the first two minutes, and they had to like postpone everything. They, and then uh, the audience, Gene Barry still had no idea what the hell he was doing. They were looking for a replacement. They couldn't find one. And uh, these Boston Blue Bloods, don't, I don't think they're ready for this. So this is the story. Herman Firestein and Lawrence are in the back of the theater, pacing nervously. And the show starts, and the men come out, and they're wearing dresses. And you can feel the entire like Boston audience like tense up. People start walking out. People are looking away from the stage. They're <laughs> coughing. Then there's a number where uh, Alban transforms himself into a woman, and people are laughing through it. It's not going very well. And then halfway through the show, uh, of the first act, George and Alban are out on the beach, and George says it reminds us reminds me of the time that we first fell in love with each other. And he takes Alban's hand, and he sings a song called "Song on the Sand." It's a man singing a love song to another man. This is the first time this is happening in a music on a on a musical of this level. And Lawrence and Firestein and Harmon all noticed something: the older men in the audience were putting like their hands in their wives' hands. So they were whole, they were like, oh, this is a romantic song. And from that point on, people loved Got it. the show. Then at the end of the show, they were all saying all these audiences, all these people who came in like embarrassed with their eyes down, they were the first to be leading the standing ovation okay. for the show. So obviously they had a hit on their hands. The one demographic, ironically, that was not over the moon with the show was a lot of the gay audience members that because they were like, this show needs to be more political. Like, why is it all about sequins and sparkles when people are dying of AIDS? Got like, it. Yep. You need to do something here. So they were the ones that had the the problem with it. Here's Gene Barry singing a song on the sand. Though the time tumbles by, there is one thing that I am forever certain of. I hear love. Now, eventually, Lawrence was like, I have to either fire Gene Barry or I make him better. They couldn't find a suitable replacement. So Lawrence and Barry had a huge fight. 
And he said, I need you to get better. He's like, because I'm afraid that you keep stepping on George Hearn's punchlines. So he gave him like basic direction. Like, hey, always look in George's eyes. Well, anyway, it seemed to work uh, because both men would be nominated for Tony Awards for their performances. Going to Broadway on August 21st, 1983, Lacage opened at the Palace Theater and it was a hit. A big, fat, gay hit. Audiences loved it. Most of the critics loved it. Jerry Herman was back. Take that, Steve Sondheim. I Am What I Am became not only a huge gay anthem because it was the gay, the gay movement finally had like a song. There weren't a lot of songs about like the gay movement on the radio. There were lots of songs about African-Americans. There's lots of songs about women, but like the gay movement didn't have any songs. Now they had one with I Am What I Am, but there was no way that this show was going to win the Tony Award, would it? Well, it might not have if it weren't for two people, Alan Carr and Frank Rich. Carr was from the world of Hollywood and wanted to know from the uh, the press people's plans for campaigning for the Tony Award, to which they said, we don't do that in New York. And Carr said, you do now. And Alan Carr whined and dined and pampered the Tony voters and campaigned to have Lacajo Fall win Best Musical. Now, Frank Rich today is known as one of the most prominent political journalists. He's a producer on Veep, but he used to be known as the Butcher of Broadway as the New York Times theater critic. And he didn't really love Lacage, but he loved Sunday in the Park with George <sighs> a lot. And he told everyone how much he loved it and wrote story after story about it. And I think that pissed people off that the chief critic of the New York Times was practically doing marketing for Sunday in the Park with George. So on Tony night, it's time for them to announce best score. And in an upset, Jerry Herman beats out Stephen Sondheim. And after years of being dismissed because he wasn't clever like Sondheim, Herman makes this acceptance speech. This award forever shatters a myth about the musical theater. There's been a rumor around for a couple of years that the simple, hummable show tune was no longer welcome on Broadway. Well, it's alive and well at the palace. The simple, hummable show tune. And then the queens come out, darling. How dare he insult Sondheim? They saw it as a swipe to Sondheim, that he doesn't write simple and hummable. Years later, they asked somebody asked Sondheim about it, and he was like, he goes, I did not take it that way at all. He's like, I don't know why everyone... Sondheim doesn't give a shit. He's like, please. Yeah. Then they decide they're going to perform on the Tony Awards, which is nationally broadcast, and they will have George Hearn sing I Am What I Am. But here's this is where it gets a little confusing. When he comes out to sing it, folks, he's wearing a tuxedo. The story was that he said, if I'm remembering correctly, he said... CBS said I had to wear the tuxedo. CBS said I couldn't wear, I couldn't sing the song in a dress on stage. However, as soon as he was done performing, his the next category to be announced was the Best Actor nomination, which he was most likely going to win. It. So they said no. He didn't want to accept the award wearing a woman's dress. Who knows? Either way, I'm sure he was sleeping with five women back there. <laughs> uh, and the Best Musical that night goes to. Lacajo Fall. Okay. Sorry, Sunday in the Park with George. Now, Mandy Patinkin, who is the star of Sunday in the Park with George, is pissed about this and comes to Sunday in the Park with George the next day in full women's drag, going, if this is what they want, that's what we'll give them. What the producers quickly realized with Lacage was that the role of Alban always needed a Broadway actor that could sing and act the role. But George had to be the name role, the celebrity the audience can latch on to. And folks... 
here comes the fun. <laughs> because after Gene Barry, there was a cycle of people that came through. The first replacement was the 1940s actor, Van Johnson, <laughs> who was best known for always wearing red socks, a big queen in his own life, but publicly said he wasn't. The show was a huge success in London, Australia, etc. And they wanted to keep it running, but AIDS comes around. And it starts to kill off not only members of the gay community, but also lots of ensemble members and crew of Lacajo Fall. And people are now starting to come to the theater with seat protectors because they don't want to get AIDS from sitting in the seats that maybe somebody with AIDS had. But Lacage is like, well, maybe we'll get a little bump in our sales because Lacajo Fall 3, oh. the wedding, is now... Out. Okay. 1986. What is Lacajo Full 3 the wedding? Well, in this one, Alban uh, can inherit a lot of money if he marries a woman and sires a baby. Here is the trailer for Lacajo Full 3. This legacy is among condition. My beneficiary, Mr. Rougeau, must have a wife. <laughs> Would you repeat that, please? I didn't quite. Must be married with a female. How are we going to do that? And have a child. Uh -huh. Unfortunately, Lacage Fall 3 bombs, and November 15th of 1987, Lacage closes after 1,761 performances. Wow. Is that the end of the Lacage franchise? Well, no, 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 because Mike Nichols, the musical's first director, doesn't think so. And he decided to get in on the fun with a movie called The Birdcage. See, Mike Nichols was the King Midas of direction. He did The Graduate. He did Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And his old writing partner, Elaine May, they got together and decided to do an American remake, setting the action in South Beach, Florida. The cast will be Steve Martin as George, Robin Williams as Alban, Gene Hackman as the senator, and Diane Keaton as his wife, with David Allen Greer as the butler, and Christine Baranski as the mother. And... In irony of ironies, Stephen Sondheim would write the music to the movie. Oh, wow. Now, this was not the first attempt to Americanize the movie, as it was going to be done in the early 80s with Dudley Moore and Frank Sinatra. What? That blew my mind when I found that what? out. What? Well, scheduling problems arose, and Steve Martin dropped out uh, of the birdcage, and they looked at Billy Crystal, but decided that they would move Robin Williams up to the George role, now called Armand. And then Williams looked like he couldn't do the movie at all, so they were like, well, what about Robert Redford? Uh, luckily, Robin Williams was able to work it out. Then Diane Keaton turned it down. So Diane Weiss took over. They realized that having a black butler was probably not the best idea. So they replaced David Allen Greer with Hank Azaria and his Guatemalan accent. Now, while all of this was going on, they still didn't have someone to play the Alban role. Uh, and Mike Nichols decided to go see a play on Broadway, a new Neil Simon play called Laughter on the 23rd Floor. And in it was an actor that was well known to stage audiences, but really nobody else. And his name was Nathan Lane. And what I love about this, the character he played in Laughter on the 23rd Floor is a straight, angry, alcoholic. Based on Sid Caesar. Based on Sid Caesar without the workout video. And I don't know how Mike Nichols saw yeah. Alban in this That's particular character. That's so interesting character. that laughter's the one that got him. But Mike Nichols visited yeah. him backstage and said, I think I might have a movie for you. And this is what made Nathan Lane a star. Oh, I could play it straight. You take your knife and you smear. Men smear. Smear. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Get the pinky <laughs> down. So I hold the knife boldly in yes. strength. <laughs> no, I pierce the toast. <laughs> the movie debuts in March 
of 1996, and it grossed $18,275,828 in its opening weekend, topping the box office. It remained at number one for the next three weeks. Oh, wow. By the end of its 14-week run, the film had grossed $125 million domestically and $61 million internationally. Wow. Most critics liked it, but the big thing was they were like, but why do it? Gene Siskel gave a horrible review to Lacajo Foll back when it first came out, the first movie. But then in the birdcage, he's like, it's not as good as Lacajo Foll. And you're like, well, you didn't like the first one. Anyway, huh. now if you grew up in the 90s, there was nothing more iconic than some of these lines that came from the birdcage. Like, what about me? What do I do? Do I just stand here like an object? No. You do an eclectic celebration of the dance. You do fussy, fussy, fussy. You do Martha Graham, Martha Graham, Martha Graham. Or Twyla, Twyla, Twyla. Or Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd. Or Madonna, Madonna, Madonna. But you keep it all inside. And then, of course, some of the brilliance of Nathan Lane. Honey, please, you got to get dressed for me now, please. No, Agador. Victoria Page will not dance the dance of the red shoes tonight. Or any other night. Okay, but how about just the stockings, okay? Victoria Page is dead. Okay, but watch her knife. I'm going to put it for you. Do you know how she died? How? Alone, weeping for her lover. Oh, no. Darling, have you eaten? You look haggard. Now, what's also interesting is that Lane is the first openly gay actor to play the role, even though he was not officially out at the time. There's a very famous Oprah interview where he and Robin Williams went on to promote it, and it was very clear she was trying to get him to come out, and Robin Williams kept deflecting the question to defend Nathan Lane. There's a 2005 revival with The Birdcage, as well as Ellen Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, etc. Broadway decided it was time to revive the Kajo Foe, and it would star two openly gay actors in the roles. How far they've come. The nannies, Daniel Davis uh, as George, the butler from The Nanny, and the producers, Gary Beach as Alban, mm. and it would be directed by four-time Tony winner Jerry Zach. Sadly, the reviews were not good for Zach's or Beach, but Davis got a lot of praise. But unlike Gene Barry before him, they actually fired him. Yes, they fired Daniel Davis right after a matinee. According to the New York Post, Davis had a Jekyll and Hyde-like personality and was nice out of the theater, but in the theater, a total asshole. And he and Gary Beach could not stand one another. Who replaced him? Really? Robert Goulet. Oh. And I I remember seeing this with Robert Goulet like on one of the first performances that he was in. And every time someone did funny some, something funny on stage, he literally looked at the audience and smiled and was like, isn't that funny? Like he was seeing the show as well for the first time. Uh, that production, even though it did not get good reviews, won Best Revival. Then the musical was revived again in 2008 in London and was a hit and looked totally unlike any other Lacage. It transferred to Broadway in 2010 with Kelsey Grammer. Uh, and Douglas Hodge. And then they decided to put in Jeffrey Tambor and Harvey Firestein with Jeffrey Tambor playing George. Tambor left after a week due to hip problems, but the New York Post said he couldn't sing it and was emotionally a wreck every time the orchestra played. I don't know why. Isn't it? I find what's so funny about this is like the actor that's like who has to play like the woman type, yeah. and like wear the dress and the heels like that. No, they never have problems. But like the other one yeah. that just has to sing a couple of love songs always collapses. This version also wow. won Best Revival. So, folks, one play, one musical, one televised play, three French films, an American film, two revivals. Where does Lacage go next, and how did it help queer representation? We'll tell you when we get back. This was a theme, this was a theme. And now, this is a sketch. 
Broadway's newest smash hit is La Cage au Fol, that gay musical which stars two really straight men. Yes, join Coos Hound's Gene Barry and George Hearn as they pretend to be gay for two hours and then spend the rest of the day banging broads. You thought they were really gay? That's how good they are, because they are both in love with the same thing and it's playing at the Winter Garden Theater now and forever. Meow. Le Cage au Fol, that's French, just like the Eiffel Tower. And speaking of Eiffel Towers, make sure to stick around during intermission when Gene Barry and George Hearn Eiffel Tower First Lady of the American Theater, Helen Hayes. Yes, Jerry Herman's all-singing, all-dancing, all-cooter-fucking musical extravaganza is the toast of Broadway, just like the hot straight loads of Gene Barry and George Hearn. Performances run this week except on Mondays, so these two big old heteros can soak their sore balls in Jack Daniels and ammo. Yes, labia-loving Gene Barry and titman George Hearn at the Palace Theater in La Cage Fold. And if you can't join us this week, come next week when our two new stars are Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger. La Cage Fold. Come get a little sequence stank on your hanglow. Call Telecharge now. Thank you. This was a sketch. So that is the history of Lacajo Falls. So a couple of things. One, it really launches the comedy franchise. Yes, there had been some others before, but nothing of this magnitude, which is then going to be picked up by things like Police Academy and the Naked Gun series and the Hangover series. So if nothing else, we can thank it for that. But also, but the most important thing, I think, especially here for Pride Month, is the idea that before Lacajo Fall, even though you're laughing at the people in the play, the movie has a little bit more heart to it. And I think for the first time between the movie and the music, People are going, wow, gay people are just like us. They're no different, which hadn't been seen before. And in order to emphasize family at a time when the AIDS crisis was happening, I think was also very important. It looks like AIDS is what ended up closing Lacage prematurely, but it ended up doing more good than anything else. And while people might have complained at that time going, you know, I can't believe it's not political. Once again, you can win more flies with honey than you can with vinegar, which is why I think something like Queer Eye and RuPaul end up doing so well and Will and Grace do so well and it helps like push queer people out into visibility. Mm -hmm. Audiences like it and audiences don't feel like they're being lectured to and that I think is probably the most important thing. Um, It's a wonderful musical. It did beat out Sunday in the Park with George which today is something people debate and go how did that happen? Alan Carr. Alan Carr. But also no offense I'm a huge Sondheim fan but if somebody said hey you can either listen to Color and Light or I Am What I Am I'm going with I am what I am, baby. Ethan, Ethan, good. <laughs> I can't believe that story of Manny Patinkin showing up in drag. Yeah, he showed up in drag and was if like, the, this is what they want. This is what they'll get. <laughs> this is what they'll get. So anyway, that's the story of Lacajo Foal and The Birdcage as well. Also a great film. So let us know what you think. And also, um, who else could have been in the Lacage TV series? <laughs> Maybe uh, John Ritter and Henry Winkler. Oh, Oh, those are good. That's a good choice. They were friends in real life. Yeah. Okay. That's a great casting. Or Jack Klugman and Tony Randall. Oh, my God. From The Odd Couple yes, again. But actually, that might work. That would actually probably work. Yes, absolutely work. With a Neil Simon book. <laughs> Rob, you're you're drooling. I need a time machine now. <laughs> <laughs> Neil! No! You want to play a game? Yeah. This was a thing and now it's a quiz. This is a this was a quiz. Mark Schroeder. So, Mark, uh, uh, prior to this, have you seen? Were you a, a Birdcage fan? Uh, yeah, I like the movie a lot. Have you seen the first, the first, uh, the French version, the original? No, I haven't seen the original. Have you seen the musical? 
No, I have not seen the music. Did you ever see the clip where Van Johnson uh, berates David Letterman while he's yes, promoting the Kajafold? Yes, I Fold? have. I was uh, lucky enough to see that. That's a great clip. YouTube that one. Talk Street. to me, David. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know anything about La Cajol Fall. I guess the only thing I really knew about it was, of course, Harvey Firestein. Yes. Um, yes. But you've That's enlightened me. But before that, the only thing I knew about Harvey Firestein was the title of our game today, which is, I just want to be loved. loved. Is, is that, that so wrong? wrong? Which John I don't Lovitz. think he ever did, ever said anything nope. remotely nope. like that. Nope. It's just going to be on his gravestone. Must did he? despise yeah. it. Sorry. But that led us to our game today. This is just stalker trivia. <laughs> so I just want to be loved. Is that so wrong? Folks, if you don't know what we're referring to, you Saturday Night Live, it, it. John Lovitz played Harvey Firestein and did a talk show. But the talk show was all about him. Mm-hmm. And at the end, he would just look at the camera and go, I just want to be loved. Is that so wrong? <laughs> <laughs> so these people so, so good these people want to be loved and is that so wrong guys you're going this is stalker trivia real life and fictional you guys are competing against each other in separate rounds okay so speed rounds we're going to keep tally who can get the most in their thing uh person oh. with the most correct answers wins the loser has to listen to an entire audiobook narrated by harvey firestein i i'm the volume I'm all the lose. way up with just, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. You're going to just hear. I've heard the podcast interviews with him, and it's like, whoa, okay, base up. Who went first last time? Who goes first this time? I went time? first last time, I think, right? You go I'll go first. Ray, you're up. Here you go, my man. The series antagonist slash stalker in ABC Family's Pretty Little Liars goes by this one-letter name. J. Incorrect. A. A. Mark David Chapman shot John Lennon outside the Dakota in what month of 1980? November? December. December. John Hinckley Jr., who shot Ronald Reagan, was obsessed with this celebrity. Jodie Foster. That is correct. Dream stalker Freddy Krueger is from this fictional Ohio town. Uh, 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 Elm Town. Springwood. Springwood. While we may never know his real name, this is the name of Jim Carrey's character in the credits for The Cable Guy. Um, mm, Jeff. It's Ernie Chip Douglas ah. from My Three Sons, I think. <laughs> Fatal Attraction was a memorable turn for stars Michael Douglas and Glenn Close, but who played Douglas's wife? Deborah Winger. That is incorrect. Robin Williams showed us all how much he developed as an actor when he appeared in this picturesque one-hour photo. That is correct. All right, that is two correct. Rob, are you ready to see what you know about your stalker knowledge here? Oh, no. Mo the bartender from The Simpsons' last name. Mo Iselman? Sislak. Mosislak. This is the name of the thin, unnaturally tall humanoid stalker made popular through internet creepypasta. Slenderman? That is correct. Clint Eastwood made his directorial debut with this 1971 stalker story. Play Misty for me. That is correct. Joe Goldberg is the stalker main character in this book slash Netflix series. Uh, Tales from the City. Robert De Niro's character in The King of Comedy is named this. Rupert Pumpkin. That is correct. Played first by Robert Mitchum in 1962 and then by Robert De Niro in 1991, this is the antagonist's name in Cape Fear. Um, Anchor. Max Cady. Max Cady. SWF is the newspaper abbreviation and inspiration for this 1992 film. SWF, single white female. That is correct. Yes. Rob with four. I believe that is more than our friend That was more than me. Uh, Rob, congratulations. You've won. You got to start listening to that Harvey Firestein 
podcast. Well, what book do you want to have Harvey read to you? Oh, yeah, any book you choose, buddy. Yeah. Any book you choose. What book do you? And want? we'll get a sample from Rob. The Giving Tree. It was a very big tree. It was really tall, and it gave a lot. His name was Mike. I think, no, wrong book. Oh, my God, wrong book, wrong book, wrong book. Oh, boy. I had never been penetrated before by everyone who worked at La Mama. No, this isn't the right wrong. Oh, God, no, wrong giving, wrong giving. <laughs> and Harvey, where could, if, if, if our listeners wanted to find out more about the show. They can go to the Village Voice. Okay, or Mike, Michael Musto. They can ask Michael Musto, or they can go to at this was a thing pod on Instagram and www. Dot, this was a thing.com. Mm-hmm. And and I just want to be loved. Is that so wrong? Or patreon.com slash this was a thing. Uh, old Lucy level $5 gets you exclusive content. So much exclusive content. I'm sure Rob's going to do something with his Harvey Firestein on Patreon. So get ready for that, folks. And don't forget, the best of times is now. Thanks for listening to This Was a Thing, and a big thanks to the folks that keep this show running. Our editor, Daniel Cut Cut Schwartzberg, our composer, Billy Better Than DC Reese, our social media director, Gabe Hashtag Crawford, our graphic designer, Natalie's Nothing Too Graphic DeSavia, and finally, our games coordinator, Mark the Shark Schroeder. If you liked what we did today, make sure to head on over to iTunes to rate and review us. The more stars you leave us, the more love we feel. Hey, speaking of love, show us some social media love. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at This Was a Thing Pod and Facebook we are This Was a Thing Podcast. Reach out, we'd love to hear from you. And if you really liked what we did today, head on over to Patreon.com and become one of our sponsors, and you'll get access to special episodes, interviews, and merch. That's Patreon. Search This Was a Thing and support us so we can keep doing this show. 